Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. On today's podcast, I just want to answer a basic question, and that is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? As believers in Christ, we hold firmly to the gospel of salvation. And so what I want to do in this podcast is simply look at the scriptures and discover the richness of what God's word says about the gospel. Maybe you've heard of the term, pay it forward. Uh, This is a philosophy of life that teaches that if someone performs a random act of kindness on your behalf, you may not immediately be able to pay them back. So instead, what you do is you return the favor by doing a random act of kindness to someone else. It's a creative way to quote-unquote pay back the goodness done to you by being kind to someone else. A few years ago, a movement called the Karma Experiment formed on Facebook, and it grew rapidly to over a million members in 39 countries around the world. And and in their own words, this is what this organization is all about. Uh, They say, quote, they're an international kindness community that exists to serve and support the thousands of local organizations and millions of kindness advocates throughout the world. So this organization, this karma experiment organization, believes that if enough people around the world do random acts of kindness, then the world will evolve into this utopia of peace and harmony, ushering in an end to much of the social ills that plague society. And so it urges people to seize each opportunity to give selflessly to others do random acts of kindness so that the world can become a better place. So this karma experiment desires to motivate people to do random acts of kindness by promoting this quote-unquote pay-it-forward type mentality. Now, at first glance, this sounds very noble. It sounds reasonable. Who doesn't want to be kind to others? Who doesn't want the world to be a better place? especially in light of all the things that are going on right now in Charlottesville. And uh, we just had a terrorist attack yesterday in Spain and and all the things we see around the world. Uh, Who doesn't want the world to be a better place? Who doesn't want to be selfless and give themselves to others in this spirit of generosity? I mean, these these are wonderful virtues. But here's a huge question that I need to ask of the karma experiment. Why is it called the karma experiment. What's the catch? Does anybody simply do an act of kindness with no strings attached? Or do they hope to somehow receive something in return? So let's ask the question, what exactly is karma? Well, karma is cosmic cause and effect. Basically, it means this. If you do enough good deeds or you do enough random acts of kindness, if you do enough good, then over time, because you're basically building up good karma by the good things you're doing, good things will come back to you. 
But, on the other hand, if you do bad deeds, or if you, quote-unquote, fail to pay it forward, or you don't do random acts of kindness, or, or you do some sinful things, then eventually bad things will come back to haunt you. So here's the thing. You better pay it forward. The more you pay it forward, the more you show kindness, the more good you're doing, the more good karma you're stacking up for yourself so things won't go badly for you in the future. So in essence, this karma experiment does indeed have a catch. The catch is this. You better do enough good deeds. You better make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You better make sure you stack up enough good deeds so that positive things will come your way. If you don't, then you'll experience bad karma. And that may be some type of future suffering or something bad or bad luck's going to happen to you. So in essence, this quote-unquote experiment is not really as selfless as it appears. It's actually very self-centered. The only reason people perform acts of kindness is so that they will be blessed in the future with good karma. And I would venture to say that millions of people around the world fundamentally operate on this type of worldview. But what's sad to me is that believers in Christ are not immune to this type of philosophy. Maybe you're listening to this and this is how you think life works. Maybe you even approach your relationship with God more out of quote-unquote a pay-it-forward karma experiment rather than what the Bible teaches. So let me just ask a question. Is this approach to life truly good news? Can you truly do enough good to quote-unquote pay it forward? How much kindness is enough kindness to make sure you have good karma coming back to you? What if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds? Is there any hope at all in this type of belief system? Well, I have good news for you today. The gospel of Jesus Christ stands in direct opposition to this idea of karma and paying it forward. So what exactly is the gospel? If I were to go out today and stop people on the streets or maybe do some some interviews and ask the basic question, what's the gospel? I'm sure I'd get a lot of different answers. Maybe some people would say, well, I think it's a type of music that my grandmother likes to listen to. Maybe somebody say, isn't that 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 crazy televangelist on on TBN that does those weird things? Maybe somebody will say, well, it means to ask Jesus into your heart. Maybe somebody else will say, well, isn't that something that you church people believe? Maybe most people would probably say, "I, I really don't know. I've heard the term, but I really don't know. Well, let me tell you what my burning passion is. As believers in Christ, we must never lose our love, appreciation, an understanding of the gospel. The gospel is central to all we are and all that we do. The gospel should affect both our thinking and our behavior. It should transform our hearts and bend our wills to the lordship of Christ. Most, if not all, the battleground in the Christian life takes place in your heart and in your mind. So if we can have our thought life permeated by a true and clear picture of the gospel, 
then we'll be sustained by his powerful grace to understand our identity in Christ. If we can have our hearts softened by the beauty of Christ in the gospel, we will bow humbly in gratitude for his amazing grace. If we can have our wills reoriented to God's radical mercy in the gospel, then we will obey him consistently in daily repentance. In other words, the gospel should affect the totality of our lives, which means our deepest thoughts, our most intense affections, and in presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Well, the word gospel itself means good news. That's what the word means in the Bible, good news. It's an announcement of what God has done for us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not simply good advice that you can take or leave. It's not a mere suggestion to help improve your life. It's not a private spiritual experience that only you have experienced with no grounding in historical facts or truth claims. Instead, the gospel is news to be proclaimed. It is to be announced. It is to be heard. It would be similar to a leading story on cable news or the, the banner ad on a website. The gospel announces a historical fact that has happened, such as the Broncos win Super Bowl 50. Of course, I'm from Colorado and I'm a huge Broncos fan. And that was when Peyton Manning led us to, to win Super Bowl 50, the, the announcement. Or Gas prices hit all-time low. It's an announcement of something in history. Or Donald Trump wins presidency. It's an announcement of historical fact. Well, let me just give you some issues related to the gospel. Paul summarizes the heart of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. through 4. Listen to what Paul says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. At its core, Paul is saying, The gospel manifests itself in the historical facts surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. And it really centers on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. It proclaims that Jesus died in our place, bearing God's wrath, paying the penalty for sin that we deserved in order that we might be forgiven, saved, cleansed, and accepted by God. And Paul reminds us that the gospel is the message that we've received. It's a message. But he also says it's a message, it's a historical truth in which we are currently standing. The gospel serves as the foundation that determines everything for life and godliness. Now, when Paul says this is what you are standing in, he uses a verb tense, which means um, it's the perfect tense in the original language. It means we took our stand on the gospel when we first believed. 
When the gospel first came to you and you embraced Christ, you took your stand on that gospel. But he also says the way that, that that's worded in the original language is that we continually take our stand on it in the present. In other words, we hold fast to this gospel as our bedrock confession. We continually find our confidence in a sovereign God when we stand on the solid foundation of the gospel. See, when, we, when you trust Christ for salvation, you embrace him wholeheartedly with your entire life. You surrender to his lordship. You take him as your treasure. And this is not just some one-time decision where you signed on the dotted line, been there, done that, raised a hand, walked an aisle, maybe got dunked in a church, went through confirmation. You, you kind of gave lip service to Jesus. You kind of acknowledged that he was your Lord and Savior. No, true saving faith means that you continually live a life every day believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. You hold fast to Him. You continually cast yourself upon His mercy to save you. And so the first thing we see here is is Paul says the gospel is first and foremost a historical fact. It's of first importance. It's about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Bible does provide us with some rich descriptions about the multifaceted nature of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. Paul proclaims the potency of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There's no greater truth that we can proclaim than the gospel. It has inherent power to save. Now, there are many messages that we need to preach. We need to learn. We need to to preach. We need to teach the whole counsel of God's word. But the primary message that we need to camp out on over and over again is the gospel. We often think that once we become Christians, we move on to deeper things that will help us grow in our Christian walk. And so sometimes we can get off on tangents like creationism and all the different things related to creationism or or maybe end times prophecy or maybe parenting techniques or, or some new secret that the latest and greatest book or televangelist has come up with us to grow. Now, I'm not saying that these teachings in and of themselves are inherently wrong. But yet, I would submit to you, true growth, true transformation always comes back to the gospel. Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors, learned a lot from him. He soon, uh, he's passed away a few years ago and he's, he's gone to be with the Lord. But in his excellent book entitled, The Gospel for Real Life, he, he makes a claim that we as Christians need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. He says this, quote, Why do so many believers live in quiet desperation? The reality of present-day Christendom is that most professing Christians actually know very little of the gospel, let alone understand its implications for their day-to-day lives. My perception is that most of them know just enough gospel to get inside the door of the kingdom. They know nothing of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you believe that? It's a bold claim. You see, as Christians, we need to hear the gospel message over and over again. As Christians, 
Not just lost people in order to get saved. We as believers, we need to preach it to ourselves over and over again. It's our bedrock. It's our ballast in the boat of our souls that prevents us from getting off course, being beaten by the wind and waves of the world. Why do we need to constantly be reminded of the gospel? Here's why. Because you and I are prone to wander. We can all relate to the words in that famous hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing, which says, O grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take it, seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We are prone to wander. Now, how do we wander? What does our our sinful heart cause us to do? Well, we wander into two different ditches. We wander either into legalism or we wander into despair. If we lose track of the gospel in our lives, we tend to drift toward the performance trap, legalism. This is where we tend to work for God's approval. We do things so that God will love us. We become legalistic. We try really hard to earn God's acceptance. We're on this treadmill of performing, doing good deeds, so that God will somehow be obligated to love us and forgive us. That's one trap that we wander into, this legalistic performance trap. The other direction we can drift or wander manifests itself in despair or condemnation. We live in fear of God as a judge that's going to smite us instead of a loving father who will bless us. We as believers live our lives in guilt, thinking that God's always upset with us and that we're so bad that He could never love us. And as believers, we wallow in self-loathing, thinking that we don't deserve His forgiveness. You fret that we've sinned beyond His reach or that somehow you've lost your salvation. You have feelings of condemnation that lead to despair. Both of these ditches are treacherous, whether it's the legalistic puff yourself up with pride ditch or the despair, condemnation, I'm not worthy ditch. And the gospel centers us back to the fact that through Christ, God relates to us as a loving father. He accepts us on the basis of Christ. We don't have to prove our worthiness to him. We obey and serve him out of gratitude and joy, not out of legalism or fear. And when we do sin, We cry out for forgiveness and we rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, I would submit to you, the gospel keeps us sane. Keeps us sane. Well, the gospel is not only the power of God, but the gospel is the valuable treasure of the glory of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Where do you see the glory of Jesus shine most brightly and most brilliantly? What makes us worship Jesus more fervently? The answer is when we see him in the gospel. The gospel you see informs our worship and inflames our hearts to love Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. In their case, talking about unbelievers, the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Paul is very clear that Satan, the devil, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing something very specific. What, what are unbelievers blinded from seeing? The glory of Christ in the gospel. And so in this spiritual battle, we have the responsibility to proclaim or preach Jesus Christ as Lord to those who are enslaved to sin. And so when we proclaim the gospel, God does something miraculous. He opens blind eyes to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's very similar to God's creative work on the first day of creation. Remember back in Genesis where God says, let there be light? That's the, the, the terminology Paul uses here. He shines the light of the gospel into the hearts of unbelievers so that they can now see the glory of Christ in the gospel. You see an unregenerate person that's steeped in spiritual blindness just simply views Jesus and his gospel as outrageously foolish. His beauty becomes a royal waste of their time. Lost people may simply just view Jesus as a guru, a spiritual life coach. He's got some helpful moral teachings. But Jesus is not worthy of their absolute devotion and worship. But when God sovereignly shines that light in lost people's hearts and regenerates them by causing the new birth, they miraculously now see Jesus as glorious, wonderful, worthy to be treasured. He is worth pursuing as supremely valuable. And Paul calls the glory of Christ in the gospel a treasure in a jar of clay. Now, why a jar of clay? Why a vulnerable, easy-to-break earthen jar? Why are we commissioned as feeble people to carry this treasure? You see, God has entrusted us to the greatest message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that when all is said and done, God alone gets the credit and His name is praised because the surpassing power belongs to Him. The gospel is also the word of truth. Paul describes two ways that the, the gospel is, is the word of truth, is trustworthy. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he writes, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. He echoes this in Colossians 1, 5 through 6. Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. In these two passages of Scripture, Paul says the gospel is the word of truth. It's absolutely true. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are undisputed historical facts that God has come down from heaven in Jesus and bought us in his blood. Notice that Paul doesn't say that the gospel is true. Now, there would be nothing wrong with that statement. There are many things that are true. For example, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. That's true. I'm six foot two inches tall. That's true. I have blonde hair and blue eyes. That's true. I love a sizzling New York strip steak cooked medium. 
with side of french fries. That's true. These descriptions of me are true. You see, there's many things in this world that are true, but they have no inherent power to save or the sovereignty of God behind them. Paul says the gospel is the word of truth. Truth with a capital T. You see, many people in our world base the validity of Christianity upon their subjective feelings or maybe some sentimentality. And you may hear them say something like this. Well, you know, the gospel's true for me, but I'm never going to force anybody else to accept it as true. We need to remember something. The gospel of Jesus Christ presents to the world a truth claim rooted in historical facts and numerous eyewitnesses. And so the gospel is not simply one of many good truisms in our world, but stands as the most pivotal event in history. It's the word of truth. But the gospel is also life. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, Paul says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which is now being manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's it's a wonderful truth here that the gospel is life. It brings it abolishes death it brings eternal life we receive ultimate life through the gospel not only eternal life forever with jesus but life right now where we can experience the power and presence of god himself and so the gospel is life giving it destroys death it defeats sin it crushes satan and it culminates in eternal life with christ so first and foremost the gospel is a message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to save us from our sins and conquer death. The gospel has power. The gospel is truth. The gospel gives life. The gospel is the glory of Christ. That's what the gospel is. Would you never get over the gospel? Would you daily mine the treasures of the gospel as food for your soul? Uh, One of the books that I like is called The Valley of Vision. It's a book of prayers uh, by the Puritans. And there's a, there's a poem in there, a prayer um, called, um, it says, Holy Trinity, continue to teach me that Christ's righteousness satisfies justice and evidences your love. Help me to make use of it by faith as the grounds of my peace, of your favor and acceptance of me so that I may always live near the cross. That I may live near the cross. See, in order to understand the gospel, we must first get the message correct. The message is the good news that Jesus lived a perfect life, died in our place by shedding his blood, and was raised on the third day to bring us into a relationship with God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. But listen to Paul's words, his passionate words in Acts chapter 20, verses verse 24 acts 20 24 but i do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only i may finish my course and the ministry that i receive from the lord jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of god 
Paul confesses that his life would be one huge waste of time if he did not testify to the gospel of grace. And his burning passion was to finish the course, to complete the task, to reach the finish line. And what was that purpose? To testify to the gospel of grace. It's called the gospel of grace. You see, grace is the glorious truth that we deserve the full measure of God's wrath, condemnation, hell. But that in Christ, who died as our sacrifice, we receive all God's riches, all God's blessings, and eternal life. We can't earn this grace. Grace isn't something that God is obligated to give us. Instead, He graciously gives this mercy to us because of His infinite love. And so the gospel message declares to us God's amazing grace towards hell-deserving sinners many times you may hear someone say that we're undeserving sinners i'm just i'm an undeserving sinner that statement's actually not true we're not undeserving for that assumes that you don't deserve anything because you're a rebel sinner and we're all sinners what we really deserve is hell we're guilty we're not just neutral we're not undeserving but we're hell deserving sinners i like to put it this way we're helpless hopeless and hellbound without the sovereign grace of god in the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, there's only one thing I know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. John Stott echoes this when he states this. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing. Your curse I am suffering. Your debt I am paying. Your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of cro- at the cross that we shrink to our true size. Would you never get over the beauty, glory, and unsearchable riches of the gospel? Would you make it a passionate priority to meditate on the majesty of Christ, saving benefits as they are fully discovered in the gospel? Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I appreciate all the comments that I get and the interaction I have with my listeners. Uh, If you want to go to iTunes and give us a review and rating, that would be helpful. You can find my information on seancole.net. You've got my contact information there. Uh, You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. You can visit the Understanding Christianity Facebook page and um, also get updates on the new podcasts that that are there as well as videos from our worship services here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. So until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. And would you always keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.